We're going to be talking about the next two weeks bringing truth to postmoderns. So it's postmodern truth construction. You know, people will say, well, that's good for you. Uh, my truth says this, or here's what works for me. Or maybe they find their truth from the group they identify with, and the result is given to us in Jeremiah 7:28. a truth has perished. So just like for Gen- Jeremiah's uh, peers, truth has perished. So in our day, people keep making up truth until no one really knows what truth is. Now, I do not deny that there has been a change from kind of the ancient world to then the medieval world, highly Christianized European world, and postmodern world. I don't want to equate them too much. Uh, I mean, I don't want to eliminate, uh, minimize those changes culturally too much, but I have to admit I have been just staggered as I have gone through Jeremiah this time around that it is so similar in some ways. The, the relativism does not depend on postmodernism, right? The, rel- the, the human spirit just wants to make up reasons why it's okay to be the way I want to be. <laughs> and so there's an amazing correlation here. So in the next couple uh, weeks, we're going to tackle Jeremiah 8, 9, and 10 kind of collectively in, in two teachings. So truth construction, the results, and truth construction, the solution. So this morning, truth construction and the results of that, rejecting God's absolute truth damages us. It just hurts And so what are the results of rejecting truth? Several results. The first result of rejecting truth is moral confusion. So look at Jeremiah chapter 8. We'll read a few more verses in chapter 8 and maybe a few less in chapter 9. But chapter 8, starting at verse 4, read with me. Say to them, this is what the Lord says. When men fall down, don't they get up? When When a man turns away, doesn't he return? Talking about struggling with sin, here is the context. Why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit. They refuse to return. This is God speaking. I've listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. No one repents of his wickedness saying, oh, oh, what have I done? Each pursues his own course like a horse charging into battle. Even a stork in the sky Knows who are appointed seasons, right? They know when to fly north and south. And the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask you would open our eyes, our hearts, and our wills to understand your truth and to absorb it. In Jesus' name, amen. So you read the whole context of these verses. And you see that when he's talking about returning and turning back, he's talking about the people of God repenting. So although Jeremiah does not have the formal kind of clear theology that we'll get in the New Testament, he understands by the time we get to the book of Jeremiah, uh, we're past the book of Kings, right? And we're past the kind of the search for perfectionism. Jeremiah understands that the spiritual life is not one of perfection, but one of repentance. So what he's saying here, the normal life he's saying that they're not, they're not uh, involved in is you're going along and you realize, you know, oh, I, f- I fell down, verse four, or oh no, Lord, I turned away. Uh, but instead of seeing that, they cling to deceit, they refuse to return, And then no one repents saying, what have I done? So in other words, in a fallen world, Jeremiah's acknowledging, God's acknowledging that there is this, oh, and you wake up, right? Have you ever had that where the the spell is cast in temptation? 
and you know, you're, you're being seduced and you don't even know it and you're kind of a little bit down that road and then suddenly you wake up. The wake up is the time to change before you're in the mess, right? Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. Right? You've not actually, we would say, committed a sin, but you've begun to be seduced. And that's a normal experience. You wake up and you stop and you turn around, right? But he says they don't do that. He says even animals have God-given instincts about where they're supposed to be. Now, pay close attention here. The book of Jeremiah is not addressed to the pagan world surrounding Israel. It's addressed to God's people in the Old Covenant. And he's saying, so, you know, that non-Christians today would be relativistic is not going to be a shock to the Lord, right? The concern here is the people of God. The covenant people, Judah at the time, they are, you know, God's listening for repentance, listening, oh, oh, I'm sorry, Lord, I woke up. And it's not happening. It's when his people, the truth tellers, lose truth. That's when things fall apart. Well, how does this happen? Read verse 8, 8 through 11. How can you say, we are wise, we have the law of the Lord, the instruction, the Torah, when actually the lying pen of the scribes, this would actually be the, the Torah scholars, have handled it falsely. Uh-oh. It's leadership. Verse 9, the wise will be put to shame, they'll be dismayed and trapped since they've rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? Therefore, I'll give their wives to other men, their fields to new owners. From the least of them to the greatest, here it is, they are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. Verse 11. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their conduct, their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. So they'll fall among the fallen. They'll be brought down when they're punished, says the Lord. So what's the problem? As we saw a few weeks ago, the leaders and scholars of Judah, they have the word of God, but they've handled it falsely. Why? And if you were here a few weeks ago, this is parallel to Jeremiah 6, 12 to 15. It's nearly identical, actually. What's wrong? <laughs> Too familiar. They're after money. They treat the depth of evil in the human heart as something that can be dealt with quickly and easily and lightly. And they have no shame because of their own sin. Isn't this interesting? The religious leaders of the day are after money, but comparing that to the church, we should be different, right? What did Jesus say about money? Don't worry about it. You know, it'll just come. It'll be okay. Really? That's what he says. Just like the sparrows, it'll be fine. If that is true, then how should spiritual leaders of all people be about money? Light hand. Quick and easy answers are not biblical. We're going to cast vision uh, later in the business meeting, but let me do a little right now. The size of sojourn numerically is up to God. The depth 
of sojourn spiritually is up to us. And so part of our vision is to really help people grow in Christ for real and not just come to a Sunday morning service. I'm glad you're here. Okay. That means an analysis of the brokenness and diseases of the human soul and a pastoral and small group ministry and discipleship mentoring ministry that can help people to actually experience the healing of the gospel. There is no quick way to do that. Right? You have to die to the flesh. You have to break sinful habits. You have to have a vision for something that is better than the seduction of your sin. And you need friends to walk with you in the midst of that community. You can't treat, okay, you know, here's three steps to a happy life. Oh, man. Well, if they're the right steps, that's true. (laughs) But the first one is faith. The second one's repentance, right? Okay? So, you know, it's like there is, to really see what you yearn in your soul for in your best days (laughs) is not a quick thing. It's not a fast answer. So our vision is not a happy-dappy, happy talk. It's life in Christ. And then, verse 12, they have no shame because of their own sin. And I don't know what to say other than we've got to do better. Kathy, I'm not going to say the name, but Kathy read me last night another story of a major leader of of an international ministry, now deceased, And there was sexual sin throughout. Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. Compromised spiritual leadership. Many of you, thank you, many of you are already in spiritual leadership or you are called and you know you will carry significant spiritual responsibility. Lay the right foundations. Be honest. Be real. Deal with the diseases in your soul. Compromised leaders substitute greed, false peace, and compromise for the standards of God's word. Materialism preached as faith, false peace, short-term fixes. Major spiritual leaders today preaching there's no hell, that any sexual... Expression is okay, and that's just not true. Um, you know, Elisa Newland's dad, Will Hope, was with us for a, a, quite a period of time. We kind of in recovery from uh, ministering to postmoderns. But anyway, uh, he, he noted, he made a very astute observation uh, that there is a, what we call a hermeneutical root at the problem with some of the spiritual leaders. In other words, in how we interpret the Bible. And we have to be so clear that We need humility and God-given reason to seek the real meaning of Scripture. It doesn't mean whatever it means to me and I happen to feel today, right? There's one right interpretation of every Scripture. We don't arrogantly think we have it after five minutes reading. We humbly seek to know God's Word. We humbly seek to preach God's Word. And then we humbly seek to live by God's Word. Because there is no other solution to the human problem. Humbly speaking, 
into the moral confusion. What's our part? We'll talk more next week. But, the, but to humbly speak into the moral confusion. Relationships of love. We hold out truth. So the first result of rejecting truth is moral confusion. Second result of rejecting truth is alienation. Look at the end of chapter 8, verse 21. And then we'll get a little feel for this as we go into chapter 9. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn. And horror grips me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician here? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? Oh, that my head were a spring of water, my eyes a fountain of tears. I'd weep day and night for the slain of my people. You hear his heart? This is no finger-pointing judgmental prophet. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they're all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. They make ready with their tongue like a bow to shoot arrows, shoot lies, excuse me, but it's not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another, but they do not, NIV has acknowledged me, really it's know me. Uh, There's several occurrences of the same word in this chapter, I think best understood. It's not just that they don't acknowledge God, they don't know him. Without truth, there's no healing. Now, let's just for a moment mentally go back to our previous point. When you have an unhealed soul, in other words, when there's cracks of insecurity, um, you're not sure you're loved or likable, uh, we fill this in with sins. So, for example, unhealed souls seek solace in uh, uh, different kinds of sins, often for example, sensual sins, you know, sexual or overeating food or things like that, often they're a solace for loneliness, alienation, right? Or pride sins often fill in insecurity. I've seen this in people that, you know, they're just, they're sure they've got it all right because they're just filled with, they're filled with pride, but they're filled with insecurity at the same time. It's so interesting. And so they're trying to, you know, make themselves feel better. Or greed can fill in various needs depending on the motive, you know, security, pride, power, you know, lusts, whatever it might be, right? So in other words, sin's bad. But in the healing of the human soul, we do sins because we think we're going to get something out of it. We don't just do it to be, you know, not headed, right? You do things wrong because you think you're going to get something out of it. And so if you understand in the healing of the human soul, if you begin to understand what it is you're trying to fill up, well, yes, you need to repent of the sin, but you also, how does God want to fill in that need? What is he trying to do in your life? So look at verse four, sobering. (laughs) Beware of your friends, don't trust your brothers, for every brother is a deceiver, every friend is a slanderer, excuse me, slanderer, friend deceives friend, and no one speaks the truth, talk about alienation. So here is one of the things that's beginning to happen and become more widespread in our society. When everybody believes that truth is whatever they want it to believe and they use words to gain power and influence and to put other people down, who do you trust? How do you find real relationship in that? 
It's alienating. Trust is the currency of relationship. You know what I'm saying? Trust is the, that's the money you spend in relationships. So if you do not have trust, you know, um, Kathy and I do quite a bit of premarital. We love it. It's a lot of fun whenever she can have a little time to join me. Uh, and we, we share in that. It's a beautiful thing, powerful thing. And what happens with, with many couples is, you know, like you love each other and you've got some attraction and you've got some things in common and, okay, maybe we're going to get married, right? And there you are. But sometimes what happens, even before marriage, certainly after, it's like, we'll, we'll, we'll say, well, you know, in a healthy relationship, you can ask for what you want and need. That's easy, right? We joke. Why is it easier to fight than to be honest? Because it's vulnerable to say, what I really want is X, or politely ask, could you please do X, that leaves you wide open to rejection, right? Now, in a healthy relationship, it's like, okay, you can do that, and you right? So, in our relationship with the Lord, same way. What if God doesn't do what I ask the way that I want him to do it? It's vulnerable to really trust God with what we care about. By the way, that's why Abraham had to offer Isaac, because it was his most precious gift from God, right? It's always the same. God is working to build your faith, but you've got these like, oh my gosh. And there's no, the only way to overcome alienation with God or someone else is to gain a trust relationship. Otherwise, you can be right in the room with hundreds of people and feel utterly alone. Loss of trust causes alienation, and that's exactly what they're talking about in these verses. And along with that, you'll notice, we've already read it in verse 3, they don't know God. Down to verse um, 6, they don't know God. And look at, uh, briefly, verses 23 and 24. We spoke about these about a month ago. This is what the Lord says, Let the wise man not boast in his wisdom, or the strong man of his strength, or the rich man in his riches. And those are all sources of power, Right? But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. Now that's why I think the other two occurrences of that verse, of that word in these cha- this chapter should be no, because here where it's clear they say no, right? It's the same word. That he understands and knows me. But not just that he knows God, he knows something about God. That I am the Lord who exercises, uh, NIV says kindness, it's chesed, it's covenant faithful love and mercy. It's the idea, a very rich term and justice and righteousness on the earth. So think about that. Our boast and our glory is in knowing the justice and mercy and righteousness of God. This is why those who profess Christ must repent daily. Now think about this. I have, a, I have three Fs. I don't usually do this, but I have three Fs, okay? Okay. Forgiven, free, and fruit. It's the process of the spiritual life. I, if I'm really in relationship, if I really know God, if I really know God, even if the other person that I'm mad at is 95% to blame, I take my 5% to the Lord and I get forgiven. And sometimes that's where we stop. Man, the forgiveness is everything. It gets me to heaven. But 
as I'm growing in Christ, once I'm forgiven, I seek to become free, free of that habit, free of that sin, and then I find the fruit comes, right? The fruitful, peaceable fruit of righteousness, James says. Hallelujah. And so we praise God that you are forgiven. Now you can be free and fruitful in Christ. But here's the thing. Even if you're just forgiven, you are a positive leaven in society. In fact, I should say this. Sometimes, you know, believers are like, we're so wigged out because, oh no, I still got temptations or I slipped this week or, oh no, I've been, you know, thinking the wrong way for an hour. Well, the blessing is when you know God, you can get forgiven. And then you begin to get free and you move in the process of moving toward fruitfulness. You may feel your sins and temptations, but when you know God, you fight it, you repent, and God's spirit works transformation over time. The danger that Jeremiah is talking about is when many don't know God, rejecting his ways, society tips toward chaos and alienation. A loss of integrity deteriorates relationships. Now we see this. There's a high divorce rate. There's a lot of now, actually the divorce rate's gone slightly down, but we found out that premarital cohabitation has gone up. And apart from any scriptural rebuke of that, which there is, of course, uh, even the social scientists will tell you that's the worst way to prepare for a long-term relationship. You know, people that live together, you know how many of those people are together 20 years later? 5%. Yeah. One of my stepbrothers happens to be one of them, but, you know, okay. You know, 30 years, never got married. Really? Okay, whatever. You know, we'll do it right here, you know. <laughs> but, uh, okay, so, you know, but usually that's not the case. Unstable pair bonds, rise of single parenting, Less church connection often results in greater dependence on government, but the government can't create community, even if it can meet some needs. But the saddest thing of all is back in verse 4. Who can I really trust? So how is the church to respond to this? Obviously, we're going to hold up truth, but that's not enough. We need to start, we need to do our best to begin to model not just, you know, people recover from arbitrary truth construction, not just through hearing truth, but through seeing and experiencing non-exploitive relationships. By experiencing people who really care. I mean, many of you have actually said, uh, I know that I could, that the first experience of people that just loved you for who you were in the body of Christ was, was just amazing, right? Wow. What's after these people? I mean, my first family was this church before it was a church. It was the first, I, in fact, when I became a Christian, uh, I felt very dislocated appropriately from the military. Trust me, I won't go into detail. Uh, that would definitely should not have been my close fellowship with the direction most of those guys were going. Anyway, uh, so but then I'd come to the U and I still felt kind of dislocated. Like even the church I went to was great, but I just, and I just thought that was how it was to be a Christian. You just felt like you don't fit anywhere and until heaven, the hallelujah, right? So, okay, that's how it is, right? Um, but then, you know, then I ran into some people in Chi Alpha. It's like, oh, like there can be real connection with people. Of course, my family background had not prepared me for connection either. But, so there can be real connection with people 
that is honest, no pretense, take down the walls, talk about who you really are, be accepted, and be challenged. Wow. That's, that's, so we can't just speak the truth. You see that? You speak the truth, and you know what's going to happen for a lot of postmodern? It's going to bounce off. Right? You don't care about me. Sure, say your truth. My truth is this. But to love, to get involved in relationship in whatever way is, you know, as God leads and is appropriate, and particularly what we have seen even on the front end of this at Sojourn is that um, this is one reason why small groups are strategic. Sometimes when somebody, they meet a few of your friends in a warm context, it's like, oh, these are nice people. I like these people, right? And there's a softening toward truth. There's a recognition. But that requires real love. Uh, I mentioned premarital early, earlier. Um, that helps to talk through. Uh, you know, those of you that are, well, all of us, but, but certainly those of you that are, that are under 35, if you will build a healthy marriage, that may be one of your evangelistic opportunities to your peers because it's not that typical. So just be thinking about that, those of you that are married. Um, and again, small groups that foster real relationship. Get forgiven, get free, get fruitful. As people taste genuine trust relationships, this brings new possibilities to the heart that you may never have dreamed were possible. So second result of rejecting truth is alienation. One more result, more briefly, of rejecting truth is that it actually God curses creation. Uh, look at chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, uh, God says, should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord, should I not avenge myself on such a nation? I'll weep and wail for the mountains and take up a lament concerning the desert pastures. They are desolate and untraveled, and the lowing of cattle is not heard. The birds of the air have fled, and the animals are gone. I'll make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals. I'll lay waste the towns of Judah so that no one can live there. Um, what man is wise enough to understand this? Who's been instructed by the Lord and can explain it? Why has the land been ruined and laid waste like a desert that no one can cross? The Lord says it's because they have forsaken my law. Now, Jeremiah is using his terms. He didn't have the word ecology. But one of the consistent things we see in Jeremiah is that when we forsake God's ways, it not only creates social problems, it creates ecological problems. Verse 12, why, why a devastated ecology? Because of disobedience. Now, let me give their context, and I'll give ours. Their context would be, uh, they think, okay, if I do these idolatrous sacrifices, then I can do whatever I want with the land, and it will produce crops. Now, we would not necessarily do that, but we sometimes have the idea that uh, our magic is technology, right? So I can use technology as a source, unlimited source of wealth, as if I owned the land and was not a steward of the land. And the point here is that the gospel touches even the use of land, right? That we, like Israel, we see ourselves not as owners, but stewards. Right? That's the biblical position toward the created earth. Gospel touches even the use of land. So how do we as a church respond? I do think that it is wise 
to model a simplicity of life with contentment and demonstrate that God will bless a lifestyle that does not exploit, take advantage of. Because the third result of rejecting truth is the cursing of the land. So today, very cheery message. <laughs> this is the triage, okay? This is the, here's the problem, and uh, uh, we'll look at solutions next week. But uh, the sober result of rejecting truth is moral confusion, alienation, and even some problems ecologically. Next week, we'll look at Jeremiah's solution. But especially, I want us to recognize, what are we doing here? Part of what we're doing is I'm trying to take seriously as the pastor of Sojourn Campus Church. You know, we can say, well, you know, share the Lord, and people do, and it's great. Actually, when we talk to you, we find out this congregation, people are sharing Christ. Hallelujah. This is really, really good. It is wonderful. But we want to add biblical wisdom to that. We want to say, okay, so what is the deal with some of our peers? Like, what is so challenging, right? And so if we understand what the challenges are, then we're going to be able to be equipped to say, Lord, how do you want us to respond to this? So, so I want us to understand that, you know, sometimes you run into somebody and they've got a great church background, they were never wounded, and uh, they kind of, you know, I mean, I was a little wounded, but kind of like me, and they just say, hey, here's how you know Jesus, and they go, sign me up, and that's hallelujah. That, okay, that was me, right? And there are people like that, and it's great, and I love it, right? Uh, but it's also good to understand what about these people that are, man, they're just like really, really different from me, and maybe they're taking hormones to transition their gender, or they've got all these different views. Well, do I just write them off? No. No. Hold on to truth. Demonstrate integrity of relationship. And then live simply with contentment. Stand with me. Let's pray today. So, Lord, as we prepare to be greater, more effective, loving ministers of the gospel, I do pray you help each one to get forgiven free and fruitful. So, Father, as we stand before you this morning, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would saturate our souls, pour out your Spirit upon us, help us to really grasp your Word, and help us to be in harmony with the whisper of your Holy Spirit. Just ask everyone to close your eyes for a moment. I'm going to open mine. Anybody here would say, you know, I honestly, I have a need to be forgiven. I have been resisting the Lord on an area, and I just, I just want to get that right right now. Just raise your hand real quick. Yeah. Just, yeah, real quick. Okay. Put it down. That's great. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we want to say, in Christ, you confess your sins, you're forgiven. Right? And I want you to get that in your soul. You don't have to twist God's arm. You are forgiven. So Lord, in Jesus' name, we pray right now. May the blood of Christ where we've been kind of fighting you, resisting you, pride or lust or greed or whatever it might be, anger, not well-managed anger, whatever it might be, in Jesus' name, cleanse and forgive right now. I pray for the peace of Christ. In fact, I pray that you would begin to get us uh, so used to the peace of Christ that the second we lose it, we're, we're in prayer. We're just like, Lord, what's up? We pray we just get so used to the peace of Christ. We're just like, I just want to live there all the time, all the time, all the time. Hallelujah, Lord. Help us, Lord, to grow. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Second question, you say, 
uh, I'm not free. I've been going back over and over. Now, I want to be clear here. We're not going to fix this with one prayer, but I do want to have you, give you a chance to respond, to take a stand and say, I need to, I need to stand against a serious habit that is just causing me trouble over and over. Just quickly raise your hand, put it down. Yeah, okay, yep. Okay, so we know this is not a shock, but we're asking, Lord, in Jesus' name, for those here that are, that's what's going on, we pray break, break the pattern, both in their mind, give them a more compelling vision of something that's better than the thing they're drawn to, and I pray give them community, at least one or two people they can be honest with, that they can begin to receive support and healing. Jesus, Jesus. Lord, for all of us, we ask you'd move us into fruitfulness, grace and glory, not because we're better than anybody else, but because we've tasted your goodness, free and rejoicing in you. We thank you, Father. I bless now everyone standing here, sitting here, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Strengthen us, continue to open our hearts and minds to your word that we could be effective ministers of the gospel. Continue to build in real community, trusting relationships that we could continue to grow in Christ and to hold out hope to a broken world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.